Well, uh, thank you, Greg. It's wonderful to be back. And uh, I feel a little nervous following in the footsteps of folks like PJ and, uh, and Niall Ferguson. Um, as Greg mentioned, I've made a couple of changes to the remarks that I was planning to give on the basis of um, last night's developments in the States. And so what I thought I would do is frame the discussion around the idea of Trump versus ISIS, right? What will it look like? Um, what is the terrorism threat likely to, how is it likely to develop in the next uh, months to years? And what is the election of Donald Trump likely to change about the way that the US approaches it? So I thought I'd start off by talking about where we are now, what, what the status of the Islamic State as a terrorist organization is right now at the end of 2016. Uh, and then talk a little bit about what's likely to happen over the next couple of months, because remember, it's still 70 days before Trump himself is actually um, inaugurated. So for the next two months or so, it will be President Obama and we'll be dealing with some very significant fighting uh, in Mosul, in Raqqa and a number of other places, which will be more or less over by the time that Trump actually takes office. And then I want to focus on the next two and the next four years. And for those that know um, US politics, uh, the first two years are very important in an administration because it's before the first midterm. And so whatever the structural uh, alignment of who controls the Senate, who controls the House, the Supreme Court, and the White House stays relatively the same for the first two years. And that's your window of opportunity to get things done before the goalposts begin to shift. Um, so let me jump right in. Um, and I, as normal, I'm going to try to avoid acronyms and too many um, Arabic names and so on, um, but very happy to get into uh, anything you guys want to pick up in as much detail as you like when we get to uh, Q&A. So where are we now with Islamic State? I think it's important to start with a recognition that Islamic State is not one thing. It's actually three very distinct, quite different entities. The first of those is a state-like entity that primarily exists in Iraq and in Syria, which ISIS describes as the caliphate, and I'm going to use that term as well without in any way endorsing uh, their claim to lead uh, the, the Islamic Ummah of, of the planet. But the, the caliphate is that kind of central state-like entity in Iraq and Syria. There is then a layer which most of us call the wilayats, the provinces. And at the moment, there are 12 of these, and we expect 13 and possibly 14 uh, to emerge in the next, uh, sorry, two more to emerge to take the total to about 14 in the next 12 months. These are external provinces of the Islamic State located outside of Iraq uh, and Syria. Finally, there's a layer that I call the International and I'm hoping that's going to catch on, but it hasn't yet. Um, and it's the atomized, very ad hoc network of individuals and small cell groups globally that support Islamic State uh, and act locally within their own uh, agenda to support the, the broader uh, approach of Islamic State probably somewhere between 200 and 300,000 people globally are part of that international. Uh, so let me talk through where we are with each of those. The Caliphate, obviously, if you haven't been following the news, is under a bit of pressure. Um, they've lost about 25% of the terrain that they have controlled for the last two years in Iraq and Syria over the last nine months. 
So the peak, I think, of the Syria-Iraq version of ISIS was around last August, September of 2015. And at that point, they had not only captured about a third of Iraq during their blitzkrieg of 2014, they controlled a network of about a dozen cities across Iraq and Syria. They had just recently captured the towns of Palmyra and Tadmur in central Syria, um, which most people in the West saw as very important because of the ruins of Palmyra, which is a world UNESCO World Heritage Site. But in Syria, the more important thing was the giant ammunition dump just down the road at Tadmur, uh, which ISIS had captured. Uh, and they also took the town of Ramadi in uh, Ambar province in Iraq, demonstrating that, they, that the, the first blitzkrieg of 2014 wasn't just a one-off, that they'd been able to actually uh, expand uh, and take control of more territory. So that was, if you like, the high watermark of the caliphate last August, September. And at that point, Bashar al-Assad, the president of Syria, was on the ropes and the regime had lost control of not only the bulk of Syrian territory, but by far the bulk of Syrian population and had um, a really shaky grip on even the cities that it still controlled. It was down to the level of buying electricity and water from ISIS in order to survive. Most of the regime controlled areas in central Syria were buying their electricity from the Islamic State, for example. Uh, and Bashar al-Assad had instituted a new recruitment drive designed to bring in a vastly larger number of conscripts to fight for the Syrian regime. And that had massively backfired and resulted in a huge exodus of military-age males from Syria into refugee camps in the region, which then created a knock-on effect, and we saw a massive spike of asylum seekers and refugees moving out of the Syria-Iraq region into Europe around that period of August-September 2015. That's all changed. ISIS is now really, I wouldn't say on the ropes, but in a declining strategic set of circumstances, partly because of progress in Iraq. And we recaptured, or the, the, the coalition led by the US, but primi primarily with Iraqis uh, fighting on the ground, recaptured Ramadi at the end of 2015, uh, took back uh, a number of other towns uh, around Mosul over the last six months. And as most people know, moved against Mosul uh, in the middle of October and is currently fighting on the outskirts of the city. Um, I'll talk more about Mosul in a minute, um, but it's important to realise that all of that roughly dozen cities that ISIS controlled uh, just over a year ago, they're down to really two left in Iraq and about three, depending on how you define it, uh, in Syria. So they've lost a significant amount of terrain, a lot of control over the population, and they're being pressed at both ends of their territory, on the eastern extent in Mosul and on the western extent of their territory in Raqqa, uh, the so-called capital of the Islamic State, which is on the Euphrates River in, in northern Syria. Coalition of Kurdish groups backed by the United States are attacking them in Raqqa. A coalition of Iraqi army uh, and uh, Kurdish Peshmerga are attacking Mosul. Then there's a very significant Turkish element in the attack on Mosul, and also a collection of roughly 40 militias known as the Popular Mobilization, the Hastar Shabi in Iraq, which are primarily Iranian-backed. And the Iranians are a very significant player in both uh, uh, Iraq uh, and in Syria. 
I would say that the the demise of Islamic State uh, is nowhere close and that it has been exaggerated for strategic effect by Western and Iraqi politicians for some time. ISIS has an extraordinarily strong regenerative capacity. Even at the height of the initial attacks into Mosul, we saw them mount really significant counterattacks in Kirkuk, in Talafa, a number of other cities across uh, northern and eastern Iraq, but also into Baghdad city itself. And their ability to still mount very major counterattacks all over the country suggests that, yeah, they're suffering some loss of territory in Mosul, but they're by no means uh, done with. And in fact, we've seen them repeatedly bounce back and move from one part of Iraq to another when they see themselves under pressure. And I think most people that know uh, the country expect to see an increase of, uh, of ISIS activity in places like Diyala province, north of Baghdad, and in some other parts of Anbar. So yes, they will almost certainly lose Mosul, um, but they are going to bounce back uh, in, uh, in Iraq. In Syria, I think it's somewhat less likely, but still pretty likely that they're gonna lose control of Raqqa over the next month or two before um, President Trump gets inaugurated. Uh, but I think uh, that's a much more difficult set of circumstances, both militarily and uh, politically. In Mosul, the ratio of forces is about six to one in terms of uh, Iraqi and Kurdish forces facing off against uh, ISIS fighters in the city. It's only about two to one in Raqqa. And there's a lot less air support and a lot less um, government support, in part because the Syrian government is not playing a role in the fight uh, against ISIS in Raqqa. What's going to happen? What is ISIS going to do? It will lose control of these major cities. It won't be dead. Rather, it's quite likely to drop back to, to the stage of guerrilla warfare. So ISIS began as a terrorist organization. It grew into a guerrilla force that was carrying out relatively classical insurgency against us uh, in Iraq. And then through the agency of the Syrian civil war, the US withdrawal from uh, Iraq and a number of other factors, it was able to regenerate itself into a more or less pseudo conventional military force with tanks and heavy artillery and uh, Humvees and battalions and thousands of fighters. At one stage, more than 60,000 fighters uh, operating in conventional military formations. And it was carrying out what we would describe as a war of, of maneuver. Um, you know, moving in in a very conventional way, capturing cities, governing cities, uh, thinking of itself like a state and fighting like a state. What's likely to happen now is it will drop back again to guerrilla warfare. It'll still exist. It'll still be relatively strong. It'll be a lot less open. And instead of being big columns of tanks, it'll be people in civilian clothes in the middle of the night, civilian vehicles, small cells, but still capable of mounting pretty significant uh, operations, um, car bombings, assassinations, but also significant military assaults. So when Donald Trump gets in, in on the 20th of January, it's quite, li quite likely that ISIS will still be fighting in both Mosul and in Raqqa, but it probably will have lost ground, but it will certainly in no way be um, a spent force in that central territory of, of the caliphate. Let's now talk about the Wilayats, the, the external provinces of the Islamic State. Unlike the franchises of Al-Qaeda, which were basically independent guerrilla and terrorist organizations that were loosely affiliated with this global insurgency 
of al-Qaeda that was run out of Pakistan. The wilayats of the Islamic State are very much, in their own minds, territorial extensions of the caliphate. They think of themselves as external provinces that follow a similar rule set and have to meet certain organizational criteria in order to be included as parts of the wilayat. A good example here is in the Philippines, where uh, a number of groups, including three brigades from the old Abu Sayyaf group, which people may have heard of, that operate in Mindanao, have sworn allegiance to the Islamic State repeatedly, have tried to become part of the Islamic State, and are yet to be accepted by the Islamic State as meeting the standards. Uh, I think about it as like TEDx, right? It's like you can set up your own organization, but you've got to meet certain requirements before the, the central organization acknowledges you as part of the program. Um, the places to watch in the next few months, both between now and the inauguration and in the first two years of Donald Trump's presidency, will be Libya, Afghanistan, Europe, and Southeast Asia. So let me talk about those. In Libya, in the central part of the country, Islamic State had temporarily carved out control of the city of Sirte, which is uh, the heartland of Gaddafi's former territory. It was also the hub of the Libyan banking uh, system. And so uh, a lot of the data um, and some of the money associated with the banking system was there, and also a, an oil hub. Um, that control, which probably peaked about six months ago, has been steadily eroding. Uh, US and Libyan forces have been moving from both directions, trying to crowd out uh, Islamic State. Like in Raqqa and Syria, they're going to lose control of that city. Uh, they actually already have in large measure, but it's not going to kill the, insti the institution. It's going to become much more of a local uh, guerrilla force and will remain a significant threat, not only in North Africa, but in, in Africa more generally. In Afghanistan, since 2015, we've seen the emergence of a thing called ISPK, Islamic State in Pakistan uh, and Khorasan, which is the term that they use for uh, Afghanistan. Very strong in Nangarhar province in the eastern part of the country. More importantly, they've been mounting attacks into Kabul and trying to turn what hasn't really been a sectarian conflict in Afghanistan in a very sectarian direction, attacking Shia groups, attacking ethnic minorities, trying to generate an ethno-sectarian uh, civil war, which they can then exploit. And that's a bit of an ISIS trademark. Unlike Al-Qaeda, which took a very popular front, kind of broad brush approach, trying to get everybody pointed in the same direction against the infidel, ISIS's model has always been to try to turn different groups against each other to generate internal violence, make the environment ungovernable, and then inherit the wreckage um, after the uh, the foreigners leave. And that's still very much the, the approach they're taking in, uh, in Afghanistan. Afghanistan generally is in, in an extraordinarily difficult security situation. Tarankout, the capital of Uruzgan, which many Australians are very familiar with, briefly fell to the Taliban about three weeks ago, was recaptured the same day, but only due to really significant Western air power and the movement of an important police quick reaction force from one part of the country to another to regain control. Kunduz, the capital of Kunduz province in the north, which fell to the Taliban for several weeks last year, was also again recaptured by the Taliban at the beginning of October, but recaptured within just a few days. Lashkagar, the capital of um, Helmand province in the south, is all but surrounded now by the Taliban. It's incredibly difficult to get in and out. 
and we're seeing increasing attacks on major cities inside Afghanistan. Afghanistan's coming to a crisis, which I think is going to hit in the first year of uh, Donald Trump's presidency. How he reacts to that is anybody's guess because Afghanistan has barely been mentioned by either candidate in the entire uh, history of the, uh, of the election to date. People are very much treating it as if it's already over, as if uh, it's in the rearview mirror. In fact, there are more than 10,000 uh, coalition troops still in Afghanistan. It's at an incredibly tenuous uh, stage of development because the national unity government, which is the compromise deal that was put in place in 2014 between Ashraf Ghani as the president and Abdullah as the chief executive, was a two-year deal that expired about a month ago. And so the, the basis for politics within Afghanistan is much shakier than it has been right when the security situation uh, is becoming much worse and you've got this Islamic State Wilayat emerging for the first time in Afghanistan. Third place that I think is incredibly worth um, thinking about uh, when you think about Islamic State Wilayat is Europe. Uh, BKR, which is the Bundeskriminalamt, the German equivalent of the FBI, uh, and DGSI, the French equivalent, uh, have both come out with estimates in the last six months which are rather similar that point to somewhere between 450 and 600 Syria-trained professional ISIS terrorist operators active in Western Europe. In addition to that, we've got somewhere between one and four million asylum seekers and refugees who've moved into Western Europe from uh, originating from Iraq and Syria, from Afghanistan and elsewhere, but generally coming through Turkey and Greece and Eastern Europe. And we also have a fairly significant homegrown radical fringe that's been engaged in some pretty substantial terrorism uh, and violence over the past five years before any of this took place. So with a large population that's fairly um, new and fairly alienated from uh, mainstream society with the trained cadres and the equipment and the methods that we see uh, being used by these groups and with the um, pre-existing networks, that's the basis for a pretty large and sustained guerrilla or terrorist campaign in Western Europe over the next year or two. To put it in context, the Red Army faction, the Bader Meinhof group in um, Germany during the Cold War, sponsored in large part by Eastern uh, European um, communist groups, never had more than about 200 people. The whole IRA in the 1990s was less than 400 active fighters. So we've got a, uh, a militant organization roughly the size of the IRA now present in Western Europe. And so the pattern of violence that we have seen over the past several years in Europe is very unlikely to go down and may in fact spike significantly possibly even to the point where we see the emergence of a full-blown reliant in Western Europe. It's also worth pointing out that uh, there is a, I'm not gonna call it a right wing, it's increasingly a mainstream backlash against the influx of asylum seekers into Europe, which is generating its own set of challenges for European security, which create opportunities for groups like ISIS to exploit that. Um, and, uh, you know, without, without being too alarmist about it, there are towns in Eastern Germany that are now three times the size in terms of population that they were 18 months ago. And all of the newcomers come from one or two villages in Syria or Iraq. 
any society would struggle to deal with that pace and scale of influx of outsiders. When you have groups like ISIS and others doing their best to exploit that, when you're dealing with an insurgent or a terrorist group who specialize in creating and exploiting ethnic and sectarian division, that's a, a fairly dangerous uh, set of circumstances to be in. And Germany is by far not the worst uh, uh, environment in Europe where this is happening. I'd say France is by far in a more dangerous uh, situation. So many of us who do this for a living have been used to thinking about Europe as a place where you get ones and twos and small terrorist cells and the occasional attack and the security services have generally a pretty good grip of the environment. That environment is shifting and I think we're going to see things get more dangerous in Europe going forward. And finally, Southeast Asia. I talked about the Philippines, about Mindanao and Abu Sayyaf group. In the last year, we've seen three brigades of Abu Sayyaf group defect to the Islamic State. We're yet to see an Islamic State wilayat re-emerge uh, or emerge uh, in the region. But I think between radical groups in Indonesia, the um, rump of Jamaat Islamiyah and a number of other groups that still exist in Indonesia, between the new influx of people and the sort of general feeling of um, uh, energy that's been there in the global jihadist movement in the last two years. The level of violence within Southeast Asia is very unlikely to go down and may in fact go up in the next uh, 12 months to two years. So if we're looking at wilayats, there's about a dozen you can choose from. But the ones that I think are worth tracking most closely are those, Libya, Afghanistan, Europe, uh, and Southeast Asia. Let me now turn to something that's much closer to home, and that's that bottom layer of um, the, uh, the International Isle. One of the things we've seen repeatedly from Islamic State is that when it loses territory or influence at one level of its structure, it tends to lash out at another. And so the attacks in Paris last November, the attacks uh, also in Paris in January, uh, of 2015 and a number of other attacks across Western Europe and North America and in Australia have often followed loss of territory at the level of the central state. And so one of the things which I think some people have assumed, probably no one in this room, but people in America have assumed is that successfully crushing the caliphate in Iraq and Syria will somehow result in a reduced terrorism threat at home. Actually, the opposite is more likely to occur. As the central state of, Is of Islamic State loses terrain in Iraq and Syria, we're likely to see a spike of violence in the Wilayats and a spike of violence within the International. Now, I call it the International by conscious reference to the circumstances of the early Soviet Union in the 1920s. If people, I'm sure no one's old enough to remember that, I'm sure we've all read about it. Um, but if you think about the Soviet Union in 1923, Lenin is still alive, Stalin is yet to take over. When Stalin takes over, he eventually says, we're going to do socialism in one country, right? And we're going to focus on building uh, socialism and, and communism inside Russia. Until that time, the Soviet Union still has a structure where it focuses on world revolution and on promoting a global communist revolution. It's a state-like entity. It governs cities. It's surrounded by uh, intervening outside powers that are trying to crush it. It's fighting a civil war on its own territory. It looks a lot in some ways like the Islamic State Central Caliphate does today. But then it has fraternal parties in many places in Western Europe uh, and elsewhere around the world that it's working with in a very similar structure to the way that Central Islamic State is working with the Walayats now. 
And then importantly, it has the international, a sort of atomized ad hoc movement of individuals, small cells and others engaging in subversion, terrorism, propaganda, a variety of other actions in their own territory in order to support the global agenda of the Soviet Union. That's very much what we see with the international now. Um, as I've said, uh, I estimate the numbers to be about 200 to 300,000. That's based on social media, on money flows, uh, on some of the uh, reporting that we see of uh, different groups talking to each other. Twitter, for example, recently banned 220,000 accounts that it regarded as being linked to the Islamic State. 220,000 Twitter accounts isn't 220,000 people, right? It could be many more or many fewer. Um, so you have to look at other data to be sure. But when you look at the money flow and where uh, we see uh, differentiated social media coming from, I think it's, it's fair to say that it's in about 70 odd countries and has a, a, a total of a, a, about 200,000 people involved in it. Very, very different set of uh, threats from what we've talked about in the central state with its tanks and artillery or in the Wilayats with these overt guerrillas. This is very much self-generated terrorism, self-radicalization, but also very importantly, remote radicalization. So unlike the traditional model of the lone wolf or the, the homegrown terrorist, which many people are familiar with from the early era after 9-11 of Al-Qaeda, what we see with the Islamic State International is individuals who are being actively groomed and recruited and directed from a remote location, often in, within the Wilayats or the, or the Caliphate, to carry out terrorist acti acti activity in their own uh, environment. Good example would be uh, the people that were involved in the attacks in November 2014, uh, 2015 in uh, Paris, where we saw uh, a series of groups come together, having linked up on social media, and a number of individuals support and carry out their own ad hoc operations as a way of reinforcing uh, somebody else's operation. It's kind of a self-synchronized, self-generated uh, terrorist threat. The tactics that are being used include things like urban siege. Uh, we saw this in the Bataclan uh, Theater uh, in Paris seen in a number of other cases where you seize a major large-scale urban environment and hold it for a long period of time. Uh, a bombing is over in a minute, uh, an assassination is over in a day, but if you seize and hold something significant in a city, you can extend the impact of your attack for extraordinarily long periods of time. Uh, the Mumbai attacks in 2008 lasted 60 hours. The Westgate Mall attack in Kenya in 2013 lasted 100 hours. We've seen even longer examples uh, in other parts of the world. We're starting to see that those tactics uh, proliferate. We're also seeing the emergence of mobile, active, mobile and multiple active shooter um, techniques. So we saw this in San Bernardino in California. We saw it in the Pulse nightclub in Florida. Uh, we've seen it in a number of cases in Europe where you've got multiple or mobile active shooters. And in many cases, people have carefully studied both the time scale and the size of the likely police response and have structured their attack in order to get around those parameters. So if you know that there are um, two to three response teams of which one is on call at any one time and the others are on you know, 24 no hours notice to move, that gives you a set of parameters around which to plan your operations. So again, unlike the traditional way of thinking about homegrown terrorism, where we think about an, an original perpetrator and then a series of copycats, 
what we're seeing here is a carefully calibrated uh, set of capabilities that are designed to overstress uh, level uh, of law enforcement and um, first responders. So it's much more sophisticated than what we've traditionally seen, but it looks a lot more like the traditional version of terrorism than those other two layers of the structure. That's a very you know, comprehensive survey of where we are. And let me look now just quickly talk about you know, what happens in the next um, you know, 70 days and the next um, two to four years. So in the next 70 days, as I said, I think Mosul and Raqqa will almost certainly fall or at least be predominantly captured by the coalition. So Donald Trump's not going to be dealing with that when he, when he uh, gets inaugurated. He may well be dealing with the aftermath, which is likely to be much more messy and complicated than the actual effort of taking uh, both those cities. He will certainly still be dealing with a very heavy Russian intervention in Syria and a very significant uh, ongoing conflict in Aleppo, uh, Damascus, and other major parts of, um, of the region. One thing that's likely to change, though, is the level of Russian engagement. So the Russian Navy's flagship is called the Admiral Kuznetsov. It's a, it's a carrier that was built in the late 1980s. It arrived off the Syrian coast with a large fleet of other vessels uh, this past weekend. Most of us expect a significant spike in Russian airstrikes into Syria and possibly Russian ground operations as well uh, in the next week or two. So we're, we're seeing uh, the Russians consciously taking advantage of the United States and others being distracted by uh, the outcome of the election and taking the opportunity to expand their territorial control and their level of effort uh, in the, the interregnum between the Obama uh, and Trump administrations. And we're likely to see that happen, uh, I think, not only in Syria, but also potentially in Ukraine uh, and uh, in a number of other places globally. We may also see something similar happen for different reasons uh, in Israel and Palestine. So by the time Donald Trump takes office in January, Islamic State's formal control of territory probably will have reduced a bit. There'll still be a very hot conflict going on uh, in Syria and Iraq, and we're probably going to see even more Russian engagement than we've seen in the past. How does he respond to that? As for most things, when you ask the question about Donald Trump's policy, it's really hard to know. Um, he's made some statements which are interpreted by many people as being quite pro-Russian. Certainly the Russians are interpreting it that way. The Russians are expecting a reduction in sanctions against them. They're expecting a freer hand in the region. Donald Trump has certainly said that it would be great for Russia and the United States to collaborate in crushing the Islamic State. And I think you'll see uh, the United States under Donald Trump potentially taking a much softer line with respect to Bashar al-Assad and the Russians and essentially saying, have at it. You know, if you want to take on uh, ISIS, uh, go, go for it. Um, I don't think necessarily that Donald Trump will be able to deliver on a much more positive um, uh, attitude to the Russians, primarily because uh, he, the, the Republican Party will control the Senate and the House, and there's a very strong anti-Russian and pro sort of sanctions element within uh, the Republican Party. The other thing that I think is going to happen, though, is there's going to be an obvious inconsistency in Donald Trump's uh, policy that comes to the fore. He's been quite pro-Russian, but very anti-Iranian. The Russians and the Iranians are allies and are working very closely together in the region. It's going to be very hard to sustain an anti-Iranian nuclear deal policy while simultaneously uh, being willing to work closely with the Russians. What happens after that? What happens after the, um, the inauguration? 
I think we're going to see um, a continuing global wave of populism. We saw it with Brexit. We've seen it with, uh, uh, with the uh, election in the United States. We may well see something similar in France and Germany in the, in the next um, year. And I think what we're likely to see from Donald Trump is a policy that isn't um, the second coming of Hitler, which is how the, the Democratic parties tried to betray him, um, nor is it making America great again because the, 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 the structural impediments to that are pretty solid. It's rather something that I've described as fairly mainstream 19th century mercantilism uh, and perhaps to a degree uh, a certain amount of isolationism. Donald Trump is certainly moving away from what has been the consensus counterterrorism policy of the United States for the last decade or so. It's a bit of a myth perpetrated by both Republicans and, and Democrats in the United States that Republican counterterrorism policy has been very different from Democratic counterterrorism policy under President Obama. There was a very sharp change in American CT policy. That happened at the beginning of 2005, at the end of the first term of the Bush administration. Uh, and so in the second half of George W. Bush's administration and both terms of Barack Obama, a very similar set of policies was applied and are still being applied now. One of the reasons why the Republican and Democrat national security establishments were so comfortable with Hillary Clinton is that she is or was their continuity candidate. And she was basically saying that she would continue very similar types of policies, but do them better. Maybe a little bit more uh, interventionist, maybe a little bit more robust, but essentially the same policy. Donald Trump's coming in and is prepared to walk away from most of the uh, dominant policy settings that have been in place since 2005. As Greg kindly mentioned, I wrote a book last year about uh, the history of this. And, uh, you know, it's a harsh fact of life that actually that policy that's been in place since 2005 hasn't worked very well. It's actually made things worse in many cases. So a rethink and moving away from that policy is not necessarily a bad thing. I'm not sure I would have chosen Donald Trump to be the standard bearer for that change. Um, but it's actually quite likely that he'll be freer to make changes to the policy than Hillary Clinton would have been. So it may not necessarily be um, uh, so much of a bad thing. In fact, in general terms, I think it's gonna be a lot less good than Donald Trump's supporters think it's gonna be and a lot less bad than um, basically everyone else uh, thinks it's gonna be. Um, I'm gonna um, wrap up now by just sort of talking about what does it mean for Australia? Um, and I think this is where uh, really the, the rubber hits the road for us. I think that we are not likely to see a significant direct impact from the collapse of Mosul or of Raqqa. We are likely to see a bit of a spike in terrorism threat in Australia in the first half of next year as a result of this general backlash that I talked about. We certainly have a much better grip of border security, of domestic policing, and of intelligence and counterintelligence in Australia than pretty much any other country that's dealing with this level of threat. So generally speaking, I'm not particularly concerned about the level of threat in Australia. I think there will be terrorist attacks. I think they are gonna be quite significant, but we're not talking about the same level of what we've projected for Europe or uh, even for parts of Latin America or, or, or of Africa. Um, so it's an elevated threat, but it's not um, necessarily unmanageable. I think what's probably going to be more significant is the potential for US disengagement uh, from the region, not necessarily through conscious choice, but through being turned inward 
through a period of turmoil and, if you like, a, a messy transition from uh, the Obama administration to, uh, to the Trump administration. Things like the Mexican border wall get a lot of um, play in the media, but even just something like repealing Obamacare is going to take a huge amount of political capital and bandwidth and time and attention from political leaders in the United States. And when you already have a, uh, a president who thinks that we should be much more cautious about where we engage, that it's maybe okay for people like the Koreans to have a nuclear weapon to deal with their own threat, that it's okay to uh, let the Russians deal with uh, ISIS in Syria, you're probably less likely to see uh, significant amounts of high-level US attention on places like the South China Sea or Southeast Asia or on, uh, on Africa or in the Middle East. And so I think at least for the first period, there may be a time frame where there's a bit less attention uh, on these problems than we've seen in the past. That won't last. Um, repeatedly, um, US administrations have tried to back out of the Middle East and North Africa and, and these problems and, and pretend like they don't exist. And repeatedly, they found themselves being dragged back in. But there'll be a window of time where we need to be a little bit more self-reliant in the way that we think about our own region and we think about our own um, capabilities. And I think that's not a bad thing. I think it's actually a good thing for us to be thinking about what are Australia's interests here and how do they potentially differ from those of our allies and how best can we uh, make our own society more resilient in dealing with the threat that I've just outlined from these three different layers uh, of the Islamic State. So I'm going to stop there um, and we're going to uh, go to a, a back and forth discussion and then hopefully we'll get some interesting conversation going in Q&A with the, the broader group.